Hello and welcome to Boardroom Talks. I'm Julia Forshaw and today I'm joined by Tim Martin, chairman of JD Weatherspoons. Hello, Tim. Hi, Julia. And you've been quite outspoken about your views on Brexit. So why don't we start off with um, if you could kind of summarise what you feel is an ideal outcome from a Weatherspoons perspective. Well, I think an ideal outcome from any company's perspective is uh, more democracy. I think democracy and prosperity and freedom are all very closely interlinked. And uh, the EU is becoming more undemocratic. So I think by having a an outcome which gives power back to our own parliament is the best economic outcome that you can have. Mm-hmm. And more from a business perspective, <clears throat> currently around 20% of your drinks and 40% of food is sourced from the EU. So uh, how are you looking to perhaps replace these products if suddenly sourcing those become significantly more expensive? Well, I don't think there's any realistic scenario in which they can become more expensive because um, the EU is a protectionist system and part of the advantage of leaving is that we can eliminate the nearly the over 12,000 tariffs that the EU imposes uh, on countries which aren't in the EU, the 93% of the world. And so if we eliminate those tariffs, which is a, taking a free trade option like Singapore, New Zealand, Switzerland, Australia, then uh, imports from the EU will continue to be tariff-free, but imports from the rest of the world will be tariff-free as well. So I see the only likely outcome of a proper Brexit as being free trade, will become a free trading nation. It's not often understood that the EU is a protectionist fortress, but it is. Mm -hmm. And so in previous times where we've spoken, you've talked about trialling more UK-based alternatives to these current products that you source from the EU. Well, I think it's a good opportunity, uh, since we're going to be leaving the EU, to look around the world and see what else can be bought. Because a lot of uh, countries and producers in other parts of the world are put off by the tariff and regulatory barriers. So we've had a look around the world for some fairly obvious stuff and uh, have indeed found a few products so far where we can source them either from the UK or outside the EU at a slightly better price for what we think is equal or better quality. Mm -hmm. Can you give any specific examples of things you've been looking at? Sacrilegiously, we have got rid of champagne and uh, are buying a very fine English sparkling wine and also um, an Aussie sparkling uh, wine as well. So we hope that between the two, we'll sell more uh, than we were selling previously of champagne. There's another one, which was a German wheat beer, um, which we found a Welsh supplier for and even more sacrilegiously we've got rid of um, Courvoisier brandy which was the uh, number one selling brandy and we've gone for the number two from the United States E&J brandy which in the United States is a uh, number two seller uh, above Courvoisier which is number four or five so we're backing the Americans and the Aussies mm-hmm. and I mean, what if customers kind of come back and say, we don't like these products as much? Can we have the old ones back? 
Well, that will, it'll be interesting to say. So far, no one said that. That's obviously a danger uh, for us. I was in one of our pubs in Birmingham today because I went to the Conservative Party conference and someone said he, might, uh, he was ordering a brandy. And I said, what do you think of, uh, of the new E&J uh, brandy? And he said, I like it much better than Courvoisier. I said, why is that? He said, because I can't pronounce Courvoisier. <laughs> <laughs> So that's a reply I wasn't expecting. Uh-huh. <laughs> and at this point, how do you have any projections of how much you're expecting this to save in terms of costs? It would be wrong to give precise numbers, but what we what 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 it's worked out at. Well, I suppose this is quite precise. Um, the, we've done it with uh, two two or three spirits so far, and it's been. Uh, resulted in a 10 pence per measure per drink saving which we've passed on to the customer mm-hmm. and for uh, champagne it's quite a bit more but we don't sell much of it so yeah, it's a big old world out there 93% of the world outside the EU it's um, you can buy everything in the 93% of the world to the surprise of British people some British people that you can buy in the UK or from the EU uh, and uh, apparently uh, it's an Italian coffee brand that's your best-selling drink, not I know. a beer well, we, or a champagne or anything like that. This is uh, this is indeed true. Amazingly enough, our number one brand in the whole of Weatherspoons, a pub chain, another sacrilege coming up, is actually uh, coffee, and we sell the very fine Lavazza coffee from Italy. And uh, the number one draft product is. Pepsi from the USA, so that's not how people think of pubs. So yeah, we've got a few decisions to make as time comes up, but I'm hoping that uh, there's a tremendous amount of scare stories now saying the ports of the channel ports are going to be blocked up, the EU's going to be horrible, trade's going to be messed up. I don't believe it, but uh, if you want to call the bluff of, uh, of the EU, the way you do it is buy other products. Fair. I mean, but if this... Coffee is the best-selling product. Is could this also be on the chopping block? Well, I don't like to think of my good friends in Lavazza being on a chopping block because that, they used to do that in France a bit more than they did in Italy. But um, I think that uh, I think we'll have a decision to make. I think it's, it's a bit tough on the Italians and the Poles, for example. We quite, quite buy quite a lot of beer from from there because I don't. I think they themselves are victims of the Brussels regime. So decisions, decisions. Mm-hmm. And speaking of France, you've uh, kind of hinted <clears throat> in the past that you'd perhaps look at moving into the French market and opening pubs there sometime in the in the future. Do you feel like that still kind of aligns with your pro-Brexit view? I think it aligns with the view, really. You hope that uh, we don't wish the individuals or the companies or the countries ill. and um, we, But what we don't like is that they've ceded their democratic powers to Brussels, so it it might uh, it might make things more more difficult in the short term. In the long term, I hope they'll reclaim their democracy, and um, uh, it will be a good place to invest. I think investing overall in the EU is difficult because you, a lot of the countries have suffered a very difficult 
economic performance, especially within the eurozone, and I don't think the currency will work in the long run. How that actually affects an investment decision, I don't know. But in any event, we're not there. We've got five in Southern Ireland at the moment and a few more there. I'm 63 or 64, so I think I I, I need to live a long time to uh, colonise France. It's amazing when I look at some of the American companies like Starbucks. Howard Schultz there started uh, a long time after I started Weatherspoon and within a few years was in the uh, the outposts of New Zealand and Australia and there where we hadn't moved outside London at that time so uh, it's the American companies only that have successfully moved overseas in a big way in the restaurant industry. And you've been so outspoken in your uh, views on Brexit and other political issues do you, have ever, do you ever have any concerns that maybe like what impact this is having on the perception of Weatherspoons, be it Perhaps some people thinking that they don't want to buy shares in Weatherspoons just based on this political perception or maybe not going into the pubs for that reason. Well, you know, I spent a long time in my career not being political at all. And it was only in the mid-1990s when the predecessor of the euro had collapsed and uh, people suggested we join its success of the euro that I took up the cudgels for the first time, which was rather odd because I, I wasn't intending to become a spokesperson. I just said, uh, if you want a, a currency, you have to have a government and you haven't got one. I just kept saying the same thing. And uh, the massed ranks of the Financial Times and the Times and the Treasury, just like now, I said, oh, if, we, if we don't join the euro, we'll be in big trouble. So when that when the UK public decided to adopt the sensible approach, not join the euro, uh, I shut up for quite a long time. In fact, it was hardly heard again until um, David Cameron came back from Brussels, having said it needs the EU needs fundamental reform, which I agreed, and he said I've got it. So it was only his little mensonge, as they say in France, his little fib that uh, provoked people like me, mostly apolitical in their lives, not a member of a political party, to say, hold on, Dave Baby, this is not fun fundamental reform. Listen to Timbo. <laughs> and another point that you've been quite outspoken about is tax reform and wanting <clears throat> to level this playing field between pubs and restaurants and supermarkets. Yeah. So how do you envision this working? Ideally, would it be pubs perhaps paying less or supermarkets paying more and meeting somewhere in the middle? It's a good question. I think that it's and in the, in the end, I think it's a decision for the public because I think if you want to retain pubs and if you want restaurants and coffee shops to open, especially in less well-off areas around the country, then you'll have to have an equal tax playing field, which is also one of the principles of taxation, that it should be fair and equitable. So I think that the uh, what it needs, and this is a guy called Luke Johnson, a business philosopher, said it needs a sensible rebalancing. The government will theoretically lose a bit of revenue if it abolishes VAT on food, as it has for supermarkets. Uh, but I think that can be uh, regained through increased taxes because pubs, restaurants on, pay much higher average taxes than supermarkets and possibly a little bit of taxation on a few things that sell in supermarkets. So at the moment, if you buy a pizza in a, a pub, you pay 20% uh, VAT. If you buy a frozen one in a supermarket, 
supermarket, you pay nothing. I, I may have selected the only item that has VAT in supermarkets, but almost nothing is vatable in supermarkets. So maybe a little tiny wincy bit that no one would notice could become vatable. Mm-hmm. So I suppose sort of the ideal endgame would be discouraging people from buying alcohol at a supermarket and instead being more encouraged to come into a pub if it's more this level playing field. I think I think that's that's what I think is a good social goal because drinking in a pub for all its faults uh, is supervised, it's subject to strict licensing control. Anyone can go in and buy unlimited uh, alcoholic drinks from a supermarket and give them to people uh, who drink in circumstances which are unsupervised. Also, I think the health lobby would like it because it pubs are more expensive than a supermarket and it pushes up the average price that people pay if like 40 years ago 90 percent of the beer was drunk in pubs uh, that people would be on average paying a higher price now and um, 50 percent of the beer is drunk is con- bought from supermarkets there's been a massive switch and continuing loss of trade uh, from the on trade from pubs and restaurants to supermarkets Mm-hmm. And how realistic or likely do you feel like this sort of tax reform might be? I think it's a winnable case. Oddly enough, in the strange, bizarre way that human beings operate, um, the MPs, especially MPs who have a lot of problems in their high streets with uh, shops closing and so on, are very receptive to the idea of um, a better regime for pubs because they see them as institutions which can regenerate communities and high streets. The people who aren't campaigning for it, broadly speaking, over the last 20 years have been the directors of the great big pub companies. So how's that for a... uh, counterintuitive thought. And uh, on a more financial note, uh, Weatherspoons is, um, I mean, arguably quite highly leveraged at uh, around $726 million in net debt or 253% of equity. So do you feel comfortable with this <clears throat> level of leverage? Um, I think if you feel too comfortable with leverage, um, you're uh, you're in the wrong place. So as Warren Buffett says, debt is always dangerous. And in a way, I'd rather not have it. It's gone up in the last two or three years, mainly as a result of the fact that we spent quarter of a billion on freeholds. So we've substituted interest that we pay the banks for rent that we were paying landlords. So I think that's okay for a, to push your debt up for a while. It shouldn't go up forever um, uh, unless your profits go up by much more. So comfortable would be the wrong word, slightly edgy, itchy. <laughs> Ideally, perhaps going to pay some of this off in the next couple of years. Yes, or be generating enough money to feel the debt is very low compared to our earnings, yes. Mm-hmm. And... Can you kind of talk through the rationale behind the shift from the leasehold to freehold mix of the portfolio? Um, I think that uh, it's a low interest rate environment. So it's um, possible, uh, certainly was more a few years ago, to uh, uh, increase your company profits by buying a freehold and the interest you pay is less than the rent you were paying 
that, that, that's what it boils down to. Overall, freeholds are better, I think, because you don't have any rent reviews. So uh, there are, the examples are legion in the market where restaurant and pub companies or retail companies, which have a, a mostly retail estate, have got into trouble with high rent reviews and shops or pubs that were previously profitable become unprofitable. So it removes... Um, the uh, capricious element from rent reviews. Um, I think it also gives you more flexibility and um, uh, in that if you want to move out of a leasehold property, it can be very difficult. I think by and large, when you look back over the years, the Tesco's, Marks and Spencer's uh, and Sainsbury's ended up with the same conclusion, um, not when they're about our age, which is try and try and have free elves, it's it's better if you can do it. But it brings risks as well if you have debt associated. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, how do you feel like this uh, strategy might change once inst- interest rates begin to rise? Well, we fixed the current level of debt more or less all at the levels they are now for seven or eight years. So we're, we're okay for a while. And if we think that it goes up too much, then we, we probably pay some of it off. If interest rates do go up, it tends to be the economy is buzzing along in a better way. So it may be that we're generating more income to pay to pay the interest. But that is a danger. Mm-hmm. And since the level of debt at the moment is reasonably high, how would you be looking to fund any upcoming projects? Well, the uh, the interest, I mean, after after paying interest and after paying for the capital needs of our existing pubs, we're generating not far off $100 million a year. So um, we, we've got a reasonable amount of firepower to open new pubs, pay a dividend without greatly increasing our debt. So as long as we decide not to expand in France or maybe China, uh, the debt should remain, shouldn't get too much higher. Famous last words. <laughs> <laughs> and over the most recent financial year, you closed more pubs than you opened. So do you see this being a trend that continues? I don't see it as being a trend that continues. I think we made quite a big mistake in the aftermath of the financial crisis when there was a tremendous number of pubs to buy. And we thought, optimistically thought that where we had one pub, we could have two in many cases. And in many cases, that was wrong. And so a lot of the sales of pubs have been uh, correcting that annoying mistake to make because we've been trading by the time of the uh, financial crisis for 30 years. And you you would have thought that people sitting around the meeting could have made slightly better decisions, but we uh, we got that wrong. But there are some, there's a certain uh, evolution as well by buying bigger pubs in a good area. So there's, but quite, But a fair amount of it was... A poor purchasing decisions. Mm-hmm. And as of now, how much of that those mistakes from the past do you feel like have been unwound? I would say 80% have been unwound. Mm-hmm. But um, 70 to 80%, so there's still a few in there that, uh, that we'd like to sell. Some are leasehold and we think, well, it's going to be very difficult to get rid of this, so we have to trade it to the end of the lease or to a break. Uh, and some we're just uh, we're just having a close look at. Mm-hmm. And so, what do you look for in a location for the pubs that 
uh, would be newly opened. The, I think the main the, there's a, a an old adage in pubs which is bums on seats. So basically, you look for chimney pots, people li- living nearby, working nearby, um, or maybe going on holiday nearby. So it's that it's population. I think that's the, that's the main criteria. So it becomes. It's easy to select a pub in central London, central Birmingham, central Manchester, and there's some other examples near a university, 100,000 people living within a couple of miles. The more difficult ones are the small towns around the country, and some of them work very well, some of them don't. But with that, it's, it's much more of an art than a science and a much tougher decision. Mm-hmm. And you have well over 800 pubs in the UK right now. Do you feel like there's any areas that are still relatively untapped? I think we're, we, we are in um, John O'Groats to Land's End. So we are in most places. So there, there's much less scope for expansion than there was. Uh, because uh, if we could have, let's say we could have 1,200 pubs, we've already got, we've, we've only got 350 to choose from. Um, whereas in the old days, when we had 300 pubs, we had much more. So we're quite a mature UK pub company now. So unless we can um, uh, uh, open up in Dunkirk and Calais, we, uh, we, our choice is more limited. Mm-hmm. And on a different note, uh, Weatherspoons hasn't been uh, in the press quite a lot recently over some staff strikes. And so can you explain what's going on there? Basically, 19 staff in two of our pubs voted to strike. They're a member of a union, which I didn't know. They didn't speak to me or to the area manager. And we've got around 40,000 staff overall. And 11,000 of the staff are shareholders. So um, I, it'll be interesting to see. if the, the idea is that you put up the basic rate of pay. This is the issue to uh, 10, quid, 10, 10 pounds an hour. Um, we pay half our net profits as bonuses. Most of it goes to and free shares to people who work in the pubs. If you add, put that into the equation and no one else is really doing what we're doing with the free shares and so on, uh, it comes out not too different to the £10 an hour. So it's almost asking us, and some companies like Sainsbury's, for example, have abolished the perks or the benefits and have gone for a headline rate. I don't think there's a huge moral argument to switch money from shares and bonuses into the headline rate. Ideally, you do both. But uh, that's what that's that's where the that's where the issue is. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what do you feel could be sort of an end resolution to this disagreement? I really have no idea because I've been trading for nearly forty years and came up out of the blue, and uh, it hasn't been suggested before that uh, that uh, uh, there would be a strike. So I'm as new to it as uh, anyone could be, really. Mm-hmm. I'll just have to see to see what happens. It it feels, you know, everyone's got a right to strike. People have got their rights. Um, uh, it feels a bit like gunboat diplomacy. And I'm not sure whether it's the best way for either side, but I don't know much about it. I'll have to go and read the history books of Britain in the 1970s when there were, there were quite a few strikes 
And if you were to kind of give in to demands and increase pay to £10 an hour, how much would this add to your costs? If we kept paying all the bonuses that we pay, which, as I said, amounted to half our net profits, it might, and all other things were equal, it might eliminate the majority of our profits. It would eliminate the majority of our profits. Mm-hmm. Okay. And kind of overall to round things up, what would you say to uh, an investor who's potentially looking to buy shares in Weatherspoons? I'd say we're a good company. We're uncontroversial, easygoing, and uh, uh, stay out of the headlines and concentrate, <laughs> concentrate on running the business. I'd say if you look at our record in the pub trade uh, or the restaurant industry in the UK, it's over thir- the 26 years since we floated. I think it's second to none. Uh, we haven't got what Warren Buffett calls a franchise. We run one of those businesses where you've got to be good every day, which is his description, Warren's description, as opposed to something like Coca-Cola, where you only need to be clever once by inventing the formula for Coca-Cola. So uh, so it's good business. It needs good management. Uh, but um, uh, if you're thinking of going in the pub business, we're the grooviest. And, I mean... Uncontroversial and staying out of the press, I'm not so sure about. No, I think <laughs> I may have been ex- exaggerating. <laughs> and what kind of do you feel gives Weatherspoons an edge over <clears throat> some of the pub companies from a brand perspective or a valuation perspective for the shares? Um, I've always said over the years, and I might have to change the brand I quote, but I've always said it's the thousand components of a BMW. Um, there isn't one difference between a BMW and a Ford, also obviously a very good car, but BMW sells for more. And I think it's about working on all the little components as the years go by. If anyone ever reads um, Made in America by Sam Walton, it gives a very good example of how Walmart created what they did with focusing every week and they had weekly meetings about this uh, involving uh, staff from across all parts of the company just to try and find small areas to improve to give a competitive advantage once you get into that it's a good way of operating a lot of companies are prevented from doing it because the guy running it thinks he knows best if you think he knows best sack him if he realizes he doesn't know much he's a good guy to run a pub company all right thanks tim thank you very much julia For more Boardroom Talks podcasts, head to the Investors Chronicle website, iTunes, or Acast. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm.